If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Henry David Thoreau. He'll be answering our call on July 4th, 1858, three years before dying of tuberculosis in his hometown of Concord, Massachusetts, at 44 years old. Even though his brilliant life was cut short, he lived it on his terms without settling or compromising his values. While others chased coin and reputation, Henry chose solitude and found his church in the trees, the wind, and the water of Walden Pond. In 1845, he built a house in the woods near Walden Pond for less than $30 and lived there for two years, two months, and two days. During that time, he wrote the story of his stay at the pond, which was a prolific observation of humans, nature, and human nature. His writing is extraordinary, almost having the cadence of music, although he constantly reminds me that the only thing he wanted was solitude. Somehow he was interested in everyone and everything that was happening and wrote it all down. Henry was a complex man that wanted nothing more than simplicity. He was defiant about government, about slavery, unfair laws, and willing to go to jail for all of those beliefs. I welcome you into the mind of this extraordinary thinker. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and bean farmers everywhere, I give you David Henry Thoreau. Hello, Mr. Thoreau. Good day. How are you? I am well. I'm so excited to talk to you. My name is Tony Dean. I'm actually calling you from the future. I'm calling you from the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is actually called a smartphone, and it allows you to talk with me And as we were standing five feet from one another. It also allows us to share this conversation with people around the world. I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before we do, I understand this is a very, very strange introduction. Is there, (laughs) can I answer any questions for you first? Well, what is important, whether we are five feet away from each other or a thousand miles away, what is important is that we have something important to say regardless. So uh, they are making a great deal of uh, noise about the fact that Maine and California can now speak to each other through the telegraph. But what if, <laughs> but what if Maine and California have nothing important to say? What is the point? So if we are going to be using this form of communication, let us make sure that we say something important uh, the entire time that we have our conversation. Well, I, I promise you one thing. We're definitely going to talk about a few important things. But don't be surprised if I ask a couple things that don't seem important at all because they actually may be important to the people that listen. And, you know, it's hard to say. Well, if if you are asking me important questions, I will try to give you important answers. I appreciate that. First, I'd like to share my experience in Walden Pond. I have always known about Walden Pond because your book, Walden, is required reading in our schools. 
<laughs> I thought you'd like to hear that. <laughs> you you will forgive me for laughing at that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might have something to say about that, but it is well. Required. I I am happy to see that the the people uh, have finally come around to my way of thinking. I suppose, but uh, you must understand that when we published my book in 1854, we published uh, 2,000 copies. And it took me about five years to sell out those 2,000 copies. And so uh, the, the, the fact that, that anybody is reading it outside of my immediate circle of friends is quite surprising. Although I did have people who wrote me letters saying that they had read my book. And uh, I had certainly had correspondence with some people that became friends of mine because of Walden. So I, I suppose I can take a little bit of satisfaction in the fact that that at least more people than than the few dozen that I know are finally reading it. Well, this this is actually something that we definitely have in common too. I'm also a published author. I've written two books, and the one thing that you just said it that I always think when I'm sitting there writing and we get anywhere near the end, how am I ever going to get anybody to read this? Is anybody even going to care? Well, I, I think that you have hit upon the idea that goes through every writer's head at one time or another. I have often asked myself why I am not as popular as some of the other writers of, of my day. Certainly, acquaintances of mine, such as Mr. Hawthorne, of course, Mr. Emerson and others, their books sell very well. Mine do not. Have you read my first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers? No, I have not read that yet. Well, do not feel badly. Nobody else has read it either. Uh, <laughs> that is the book that I was writing when I was living at Walden Pond. And we published 1,000 copies of that. And about four years later, my so-called publisher returned 706 unsold copies to my house. I then told Mr. Emerson that I now have a, per a personal library of almost 900 volumes, over 700 of which I wrote myself. <laughs> And I, I suppose that if I wrote for others more and wrote for myself less, if I tried to please others more and please myself less, perhaps I would be more popular in my writings. I wonder if maybe people just had to catch up. Well, I, <laughs> not all books are as dull as their readers. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that perhaps every writer should, should write well, if you want to respect yourself, you should write for yourself. If I gain an audience through my writing, so be it. If I do not gain an audience, I suppose that does not trouble me very much either, because at least I am writing honestly and from the heart. And that is really all that you want in literature. If I am reading a man's book, I like the idea that I am getting some sense of his biography uh, when I am reading that book. And, and it is very easy to write for the general public and, and to write down to the popular tastes of the day. Anybody can do that. But if a man were to write from the heart and from the soul and, and, and mean what he says and to put truth onto the paper, well, then I would rather be that man. I would rather have truth than, than money or fame. At least I can look at myself in the mirror in the morning, knowing that I have written from the heart and not because I'm trying to be popular. If you were aware now of how many books your publishers were actually going to sell 
and you got a nickel for each of those and saw how much money you'd actually have right now, I wonder if you'd feel the exact same way. Well, I, <laughs> I, I have to admit, I most of my life I have tried to cultivate poverty, and I have done very well at that. And so <laughs> I, I think that uh, perhaps the money would change my mind a little bit, I think. But uh, let's just say that I am much happier living the life that I am living. And uh, I am this way. I'm not too concerned about money. In fact, I was just going through one of my drawers not too long ago. And I found, I think, $20. And all of a sudden, it was a, a great weight on my shoulders that I had this $20 in my hand, because now I had to do something with it. And, uh, and before that, I was fancy free, and, and I had no cares in the world. And suddenly, this $20 was sitting there, and I had to find something to do with it. What should I do? Should I purchase something? So I think I'm much happier cultivating poverty than I am cultivating money. I like to think that I'm a problem solver. And that $20 bill sounded like a big problem at the time. Maybe if you run into that situation again, the thing would be just to go where there's a group of people and hold it in the air and say, I have $20. I don't know what to do with this. Does anybody have any suggestions? Maybe that's <laughs> well, the answer. Well, the answer would be worse than the problem, I think, because that means I would have to actually go out and have to somehow cultivate a crowd and be in the middle of society. And along with cultivating poverty, I'm much happier cultivating solitude, to tell you the truth. Very interesting. <laughs> that's perfect. I, I want to ask you something about writing. There's a concept people call the muse. And when, when one writer is teaching another writer to write, they just say, look, don't try to write anything good. Don't try to write anything bad. Just keep writing. And as long as you keep writing, what will happen is, is the muse will appear. Now, when I first read that, I thought, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then one day I was writing, and the words that came out were just brilliant. And I'm not a brilliant writer, but the words were. And I literally stopped. Where did that come from? I mean, I was stunned. Oh, and you, must, you must always write while the heat is in you, as I have told some of my friends. And, and I do the same thing myself. When you are a writer, some days are better than others. And I usually write all of the forenoon. And then in the afternoon, I go for my walks. And, but I, I suppose I'm in that same sort of, of routine that you are describing. I try to write every morning. And even if I am not working on a book, as I am not now, I, I have several essays and, and perhaps a lecture or two that I have been writing. But I write every morning because as writers, that is what we do. And whether or not it is good, is not for us to determine. Uh, I suppose that is for other people to determine. But you can tell, as you just said, you can tell when you've written something that seems worthwhile or, or seems like it is something that people might like or, or seems that it's something that at least you are proud of. For the last several years, I have been writing a lecture that I am calling Walking or the Wild. And I think that that is the sort of essay or the sort of piece that I would like to produce from now on. It is part biography, part observation, part natural philosophy. In a nutshell, it is my daily life. I work on that essay from time to time. I will give, a, give it as a lecture. If there are parts that do not seem to go over well, uh, perhaps I will alter those parts. But that is what I do every morning. I get up with the sun and I, I write. I started that habit 
when I was living at Walden Pond. It is just something that we have to do. And I think that all writers can appreciate that sort of routine and understand it. My process was is that I always pick a certain number of words. If I'm writing fiction, I write 1,500 words. If I'm writing something that I already understand, but I'm just trying to capture it, then I'll write 3,000 words today. Do you have a, a process like that? Well, it, de it, it depends, I suppose, on if I am writing a book or if I am just writing an essay. I, I have only written two books, and I have been working on essays of late. More often than not, I will take my lectures and rewrite them so that they are publishable for a periodical. I'm, I am happy that you use the word muse because that is exactly the word that I would use. When I was living at Walden Pond, I just needed to look out my window or step out my door and I was instantly inspired by the, by the woods around me or by the sun coming up or, or often by a, a rain shower or whatever, <laughs> whatever uh, nature decided to, to send my way. So uh, there is not any particular method to my madness, I suppose. But some days, as I said, are much better than others when it comes to writing. When we get done with this conversation, I'm going to confess something that I did at Walden Pond that may actually be a crime. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to say it out loud. Well, um, well, as you, as you probably know, after reading some of my writings, I believe that unjust laws are made to be broken. So... <laughs> So I will, I will not be one to hold it against you, I suppose. Well, we'll have to see, because once I tell you what it is, you may feel differently. But So we're going to save, I'm going to save that for the end, and then I'll, I'll share that when we get done. I'm I, not sure I, I have any desire to be your confessor, but uh, we will go and see what happens. <laughs> okay, that, that sounds fair enough. When I went to the pond, it was very different than what I expected. The water is clear, like... You're some in some beautiful tropical place. The trees, oh, I mean, the colors of the trees. I didn't even know trees could be that many colors. They actually have a replica of, of your home. I mean, you just wake up one day and you decide, okay, I'm going to go live here for two years, two months, and two days. Can you tell me what happened there? Well, I had been thinking about living away in the woods by myself for quite some time, to tell you the truth. It was not any last-minute decision. When I was at Harvard College, I had spent a summer in between sessions with a classmate at a small house that he built at another pond not too far from Walden. And I graduated class of 1837, and, and that, that time uh, at that pond stuck with me. And I thought that at one time, if I wanted to be a writer, uh, which I had certainly decided to do by the time I had graduated from, from college, I thought that I needed a garret of some sort to go away and be able to write. And I had never had the opportunity to do so. I was interested in purchasing some land over by Flint's Pond. And, and here in, in Concord, in this area, I call it my lakes country. Uh, we have many ponds. We have Walden Pond. We have Goose Pond. We have Flint's Pond. We have White's Pond. And so there are, there are many ponds all over this area. And so uh, this man, Flint, was interested in selling me some land by his pond, but that that bargain fell through. And so I did not really have the opportunity to do so until it was the summer of 1844, I think the fall, Mr. Emerson purchased 
about 11 acres of land by Walden Pond. And uh, he had known of my wishes for some time. We had known each other for almost 10 years at that point. And so uh, he said that if I wanted to move out to his property and build my house and do my writing out there by the pond, I was more than welcome to do so. And so I started building my house in March of 1845. I moved into my house on Independence Day, 1845, which just by coincidence, it was Independence Day. I suppose it was my own day of, day of independence now that I look back on that. That had been a long time coming, actually moving into my own house. It had been at least a few years of, of wanting to do that. And because of Mr. Emerson, I was able to do so. And when you say Mr. Emerson, you're talking about Ralph Waldo Emerson. Right? Oh yes, of course, yes the the so-called sage of Concord. Yes, Mr. Emerson is a <laughs> Mr. Emerson is a friend of mine. Do they do they call him the sage of Concord? Well, not to his face, of course. <laughs> he moved to Concord in 1834, and I was away at Harvard at the time. But when I was at Harvard, I read his book nature. In fact, I, I got it out of the Harvard library twice. And so it must have had some kind of, a, of an influence on me to read it a second time. And then when I graduated in, in 37 and, and moved back to Concord, I had discovered that this man who had written this book was living in my village. I was born in Concord. I have lived, I have lived here my entire life. But it is, it is because of Mr. Emerson that our village has become quite the center for poets and writers and and philosophers and, and other assorted near-do-wells. They, they are all here because of Mr. Emerson. But we were introduced to each other shortly after I graduated, and uh, we have been friends ever since. What is it about Mr. Emerson that inspires that kind of movement? I think that he puts into words what a lot of people perhaps have been thinking or what a lot of people have been saying. His famous essay is Self-Reliance, and it talks about how to be independent, not only politically, but also emotionally and spiritually and intellectually as well. And so I think that when he wrote those essays, he was speaking to a, a large part of, of the population, the, the younger part of the population. I think that he has had more influence on the younger people of America than any other person that I know when he is talking about how to trust thyself, as he says, every heart vibrates to that iron string. That is something that we all know and that we all believe, and, and I trust that we all would like to follow. But when Emerson puts it into words, it seems perhaps more poetic and something that everybody can do. And when they read his books, they want to be self-reliant or they want to be independent. They want to seek an, intellect, an intellectual independence or a spiritual independence that they felt perhaps they, they was lacking in their lives before. And so he is the man that has made that has put Concord on the map. Of course, this is where the American Revolution started in, in 1775. But because of, the, because of Mr. Emerson, the Alcotts have lived here a couple of times because of Mr. Emerson. Hawthorne is here because of his uh, because of a connection with Mr. Emerson. Mr. Longfellow, the poet, Margaret Fuller, when she was alive, she would come and, and stay in Concord because of Mr. Emerson. It has become quite the center for the transcendentalists, as uh, as the people in Boston call us. It sounds to me like this knowledge and this inspiration and all of this creativity, it kind of flows through Emerson. Well, uh, he, he would be the first to tell you that. <laughs> 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 
No, I think that I think that I do not know if Mr. Emerson feels that way, but it is certainly his idea to surround himself with like-minded individuals. He enjoys the company of philosophers and poets and writers, and that is what he has always wanted. Mr. Alcott is the same way. He has always enjoyed uh, having like-minded individuals around him. And so we spend a great deal of time together, Mr. Emerson and Mr. Alcott and I, for our walks together often. I try to walk at least four hours every afternoon, but I should tell you that Mr. Alcott and Mr. Emerson do not know when to be quiet. And when I am walking it. <laughs> When I am walking in the woods, I prefer to hear the woods talk to me. And so I will walk in the woods by myself, and then I will visit Mr. Emerson or Mr. Alcott, and I will listen to them talk uh, as long as they desire. That's fantastic. When you, when you walk in the woods and you say you like to listen to the woods, can you expand on that a little bit? I am meaning every aspect of nature that I am surrounded by, the, the sound of the wind in the trees, the sound of the birds, the, the rustling of the grass, the lapping of the waves on the pond, or the sound of the river as it's falling over rocks or coming up over the bankside, the sound of the wind. Every bit of nature speaks to me on a very intimate level when I am walking in the woods or through the fields and meadows. And I am forever finding God in all of his lurking places, whether it is in the trees or behind the clouds or in the ponds and rivers. That's beautiful. This connection that you have with the land and, and the forest, I mean, where does this come from? Well, I am the, the third of, of four children. I had a sister, Helen, uh, who is no longer with us, and my brother, John, who passed. And so it is now just myself and my younger sister, Sophia. But the four of us were raised by my mother and my father to have an appreciation of nature and, and to always be in the woods or by the ponds. One of my earliest recollections, we were living in Boston at the time, I believe, but we came out to Concord and we went to Walden Pond. And and one of my earliest recollections was catching and making a chowder with my family on, on the sandbank. And so mother was always very good about instilling a love of nature in, in not only myself, but in my sisters and my brother as well. Your parents handed that to you and you took it from there. We lived in many places when I was growing up. We were always very poor. We moved around a great deal. I was born in my grandmother's farmhouse over on the Virginia Road here in Concord. We lived in Chelmsford, which is a few towns over. As I said, we lived in Boston briefly for a, for a, a, a couple of years. We moved back to Concord. But even in Concord, we lived in several different houses. The house that we are currently living in now we have been in this house now for, for eight years, all, since 1850. And this is the first house that we have ever actually owned. So we've moved around quite a bit. But when you are growing up on farms or, or growing up near woodlots and ponds, and you are a young boy, you can't help but be attracted to the rivers and the ponds and the fields and meadows. And, and, and so, and mother was always very good about letting us do that and, and letting us go and have our run of the woods so to speak. All the ponds that are in the area of Concord, they're all called ponds, and anywhere else it seems that they would be called lakes. What's the difference? Well, that is, that is a, a, an, a, a New England affectation, I suppose. Uh, I am very aware that Walden is a lake, but we have always called it a pond here in Massachusetts. Interesting. I didn't know. So that's just, that's just because of the area. 
I think it, it, just as you can always tell the, the people who are from out of town because they insist on calling Concord Concord. And as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as someone tells me that he is in Concord, I know that he is not from Concord. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been trying so hard to say Concord because I grew up saying Concord as well as I think saying your name incorrectly. When I when I was when I was in school and and learning, it was your last name was Thoreau, but that's not correct, right? Well, no, my name is pronounced Thoreau, as in I do a thorough job. Mister Alcott tells me that I am well named because I am so thorough. But uh, <laughs> from from what I understand, and, and to the best of my knowledge, my grandfather uh, was from the Isle of Jersey uh, in France. And he found himself uh, in a shipwreck and uh, was brought to Boston in 1773. And from what I understand, his name was pronounced Jean uh, Thoreau. He changed the pronunciation, not the spelling, but the pronunciation to John Thoreau. And uh, that is my father's name. And that was my brother's name as well. So we have always pronounced my name Thoreau. I see. But your, your first name was not your birth first name, if my understanding is right. Somewhere along the line, you thought that David Henry Thoreau was not correct or it needed to be changed. I wonder if you could speak on that. I was christened David Henry. David was an uncle of mine that I did not know. He passed before I was born. But I was christened David Henry. But my family, for one reason or another, has always called me just Henry. And so uh, when I left Harvard in 1837, graduated as David Henry, I thought that it was a simple matter just to change my name around and to call myself Henry D. Thoreau. I do not like the name David. And you will see that if, if you read any of my writings or see any of my essays, or even if I sign letters, I either sign them Henry D. Thoreau or H.D. Thoreau. I never use the name David, uh, even in my writings. I, it's just a name that I never used and that I am not particularly fond of. And my family has always called me Henry anyway. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Well, let me, let me step back. You said something a little bit ago about a friend that built a house on a pond. Yes, his name was Charles Stearns Wheeler. And was his home similar to what you built? It was a small, it was a small one-room cabin, yes. Was it bigger? So was it about the size of yours then, you think? If I remember correctly, it was about the same size, perhaps a little bit bigger. My house at Walden Pond was 10 feet by 15 feet. Before I built my house, I dug a cellar, which was six feet square by seven feet deep. And so I had a root cellar. Uh, my house was 10 by 15, and it was one room. It was my, my bedchamber and my kitchen and my parlor all in one. I believe... The house that they built to look like yours, it, it is the dimensions on it are, and size are very, very similar. I was amazed that you were able to live so comfortably in such a small place. Well, I remember thinking at the time that I thought my house was too large, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I, I think that, I think that um, 10 foot by 15 feet was, was serviceable, although my best room was out of doors. And that was my favorite room. That room stretched all the way to the horizon. And that was the room that I spent most of my time in. That makes sense. Because your house, your house isn't, I, that makes total sense. So as I was looking at some of the, the information about from building the house, 
I noticed that you had written some of the prices that you paid for things. And I made a note of this, but I think for the, in the house, you basically have two windows and you have the woodshed out back, which was built later by leftover pieces of wood. You got Mm -hmm. the bed, you build a fireplace on it. There's the door on the front and the windows. Am I right that the windows cost $2 and 43 cents? Yes. I bought them secondhand and they already had the glass inside of them. And they already had the glass. Okay. I've seen the size of those windows and that same window today would probably cost a thousand dollars. Well, when I bought my when I <laughs> when I built my house, my entire house cost me twenty eight dollars twelve and a half cents, um, which was about two months' wages for some laborers at the time. Um, when I built my house, the cost of a home in Concord was about five hundred dollars, I would think. And so my house was not only the best build; it was also the cheapest. Is that right? So the the price of a home then would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of five hundred, and you built the whole thing for twenty eight dollars. Twelve and a half cents. Twenty yeah, right and twelve and a half cents, right? Yes, <laughs> I suppose that matters. I like to keep an exact accounting of all of my affairs. Perfect. And so, I was living at Walden Pond for several reasons. The first one, of course, was to write my book. But secondly, I was there to, I suppose, as I say in my book, to front the essential facts of life uh, and to simplify my life. I find that as you simplify your life, the laws of the universe uh, become less complex. And I was there to, I was there to do away with a lot of the so-called necessities of life because they are not necessities. Most of man's inventions tend to be pretty toys that do nothing for the elevation of mankind. And I found that as long as you have a roof over your head and you have uh, firewood and, and clothing and some food, even the barest minimum, you can survive quite happily. And, and so I was there to simplify my life. Instead of eating three meals a day, I would eat only one. I did my best to pare down my needs and my wants as much as I could. In fact, as I said earlier, we grew up relatively poor most of our lives. And so uh, from a very early age, I learned to do without. And so simplifying my life to do without was not necessarily a a, a very challenging matter. In in this time, I would say that most people would never refer to their lives as simple. When When I find myself in a situation where I've gone too far, the very first thing I do is I go to the woods. There is a lake by my home that is about half, about twice the size of Walden. I spend as much time as I need out there just to get, just to kind of recenter. Well, and as Mr. As Mr. Emerson would say in nature, when we return to the woods, we find reason and faith. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I one thing I forgot as we were talking about the the house. When I was out the house, I don't remember seeing this the the replica house. There are two trap doors in there. Was that the cellar? There was a cellar door, which, which led down to my root cellar. And then I had a trap door above in the ceiling. And if you open that door, I just had a small crawl space above. But that was more for, re, for heat retention than for stockpiling any supplies or anything of that nature. Oh, okay. When, when you were building the home, one thing I've always wondered is, you need a place to sleep while you're building it. Where did you sleep? Well, before, when I was just cutting down the trees and, and hewing the timbers and whatnot for the frame of my house, I would walk back to my family's house. We were living over by the railroad depot 
here in Concord at the time. And if I followed the railroad tracks, I could be at my family's house in about a half an hour. And when I started building my house, it was March of, of 1845. And so there were still some snow flurries and it was still rather cold. And so I would do my work during the day and then I would move, then I would head back home in the evening. I had some friends help with the raising of the frame, Mr. Emerson, Mr. Alcott, a couple of brothers named Curtis and others helped me raise the frame. But when I moved into my house on, on independence day, 1845, it was more of a, a frame with a, with a roof than anything else. I had not even begun building my, my hearth or, or my chimney. And so it was just a, just a, an open air frame with a roof when I moved in on independence day. Did you, the chimney, was the chimney constructed with rocks from the local area? Or? No, no, I purchased 1,000 bricks for about $4, if I remember correctly, which, oh. I, thought, which I thought was, a, I thought the price was a little high. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I used those, brick in the, those bricks in the building of my, my hearth and my chimney. My first winter, I had just the open hearth. The second winter, I obtained a stove, uh, a wood-burning stove, which was more economical and did not burn as much wood, and it kept ha- kept the house much warmer. It probably was fairly easy to keep the house warm because it didn't have a lot of space. That would be – I've seen what I think the stove size would be. That would have been big for that much space. Well, and, and that is exactly right. We – I'm not sure what the people in your time think of this, but in my time here in Concord, we did not have very many trees. In fact, when I moved into my house in 1845, only about 10% of Concord had trees. The rest was wide open farmland and meadows. And so, well, Concord is the oldest inland town in Massachusetts, uh, 1635. And so when I, when the Puritans came out here to the frontier, as it was known, they started cutting down the trees. And of course they, we are all farmers or most of us are farmers here in Concord. And so the land has been cleared since well before the revolution. So, at the time of the battle in 1775, mm-hmm. only about 20% of Concord had trees, and now it is about 10%. So most of the trees have been cleared. In fact, I was living on Mr. Emerson's woodlot. The reason he purchased the lot was so that he would have firewood. And so when I would cut down his trees for the building of my house, naturally he would come out to see exactly what I was doing out there on his property. But one of my chores was also to clear some of the land, which I did, and that is what I used for my bean field. I think that you'd be really happy to see how many trees there are right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I must admit, when a great man or a great woman dies in in Concord or elsewhere, of course, you you read the obituaries and, and, and they talk about what great people they were. But whenever a great tree is cut down, you never see that you never see that obituary in the newspaper. And that and, and that always concerns me. And so uh, I would be happy if uh, at least some of the land in, in Concord would be set aside so that the trees can just grow and be themselves. Around Walden Pond, was that a very treed area during your time? Not very much. There were some trees, but not a great, not very many. The thing that saved Walden from being completely deforested was the fact that it is very hilly and the soil is very sandy. Uh, about uh-huh. the, the only thing that would grow there is beans, which, of course, I discovered. And so most of the land, in fact, all of the land around Walden Pond was owned by somebody or other when I was living there. Mr. Emerson, a 
man named Mr. Powell, Mr. Wyman, all of the land around Walden was owned. In fact, all of the land in Concord, almost all of the land in Concord is owned by somebody. There is very little public land here in Concord in my time. Let's go to the talk about the, the bean field. I understand that you did very well growing your own food and, and even more than you needed. My first summer, I had two and a half acres of beans. Mm-hmm. That was too much. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I did not read books my first summer. I hoed beans. But I also grew Indian corn, peas, beets, and potatoes. My second summer, I had about a third of an acre of all of that. And I also grew some melons and tomatoes as well. But I, I made a solemn vow to myself after that, that I would never grow beans another summer. And I have kept that vow to this very day. <laughs> <laughs> you are definitely committed. Well, so. I, was, I, was, I was told by many people in Concord, most of my life, I do not know beans. And now I do. <laughs> what, so what, what is the difference between Indian corn and regular corn? Oh, uh, the, it's the yellow corn, uh, which we call Indian corn because the Indians called it maize, of course. But uh, in New England, we call it Indian corn. It is the yellow corn. Oh, I see. Okay, good. There is a statement, and I think this part of it says, recounting the two years, two months, and two days spent at Walden Pond. Did you pick that number? Well, I was there from July 4th, 1845, until September 6, 1847. So yes, I was there for two years, two months, and two days. Was that an intentional time? Well, it, in a literary sense, it looks very good, doesn't it? That's exactly what I was going to ask you. Because to be quite honest with you, that sounds like somebody that knows how to market things. Well, <laughs> I was at the pond to write my first book. However, I, and I had written a couple of lectures. I wrote a lecture about going to Maine the second summer I was there. I also uh, wrote a, a lecture about Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish, the Scottish philosopher. And I gave that lecture in Concord. I think it was my second winter at the pond. But I found, strangely enough, that the only questions that I got afterwards were questions about why was I living at Walden Pond? What was I doing there? What did I eat? Do you not get lonely? Questions of that nature. And so I began writing a lecture uh, while I was living at the pond called A History of Myself in order to answer some of those questions from my friends and neighbors as to why exactly I was living there. And eventually, I gave that lecture several times. And then eventually, that lecture became the first chapter of Walden. What kind of reactions did you get from people when they would come out and ask what you're doing there? Were they rude? Well, my my sisters, Sophia and Helen, told me that coming out to Walden Pond to visit me had become quite the event of Concord for the young people. <laughs> and uh, they would come out quite often. Mr. Alcott would come quite regularly and bring, and bring uh, his girls with him. Some of them were, were very curious as to why I was there. Others were there, I suppose, to make fun of me and, and to find out exactly what was going on. So, But I find that most of the people that would come to visit me, if they were not friends or family, uh, if they were strangers, they were quite curious as to why I was there. And, and I was always willing to welcome all honest pilgrims to my house, <laughs> regardless of why they were there. If they wanted to have conversation, I would be more than willing to have that with them. I, 
I had more society at the pond than I have ever had in my life. I usually prefer solitude, but when I was living at Walden Pond, I had quite, I had quite a bit of society when I was there. I still prefer solitude over society. I find that there really is no companion as companionable as solitude, and I prefer to be alone. I love to be alone. When you talk about you've never had more society there, I don't think that has changed since you've left. When I took off my shoes and walked around in the pond a little bit, which I just, I loved, I was talking with somebody that worked there. And one of the things that surprised me is they have so many people coming to the pond now that they have a urine issue. And so they have so many people swimming in the pond that the concentration of urine is actually unsafe for the fish, is what I heard. Well, I... I, I must admit that that was not really a concern when I was living at Walden Pond, although there have certainly been, when I was there, there were plenty of people who were at the pond who were either swimming or, or fishing. Also, when I was living at Walden, there would, when the pond is frozen in the wintertime, there would be gangs of Irish on the pond cutting huge blocks of ice that would then be stacked on the far side of the pond. Eventually, they would be loaded onto the railroad cars and shipped to Boston, and then put on ships and sent all around the world. So there were always people coming and going at Walden Pond. My house was not very far from the Walden Road leading to Lincoln. The other road near my house was the road to Acton. So I was not secluded, and I was not particularly isolated, but I did have solitude. Is the, hmm. is, the, is the way that I would put it. Reading some of your, your writing, I, I, I kind of get the impression that that might have been what you were looking for. I was looking for solitude. Uh, well, first and foremost, you cannot be a writer unless you have solitude. And so I was there to not only find solitude, but also inspiration by nature around me. And I did have visitors. I mean, do not get me wrong. I love my friends and family a great deal. But if I am with them a lot, I begin to hate them after a while. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. I prefer them when they are at a distance. (laughs) (laughs) You had mentioned that the, the land around there is really sandy. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Because when you go to Walden Pond... It's, it's like you're standing on a beach on the ocean. I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's a sandy beach. Is, is that what it was like in your time? Most of the shore of Walden Pond when I was living there was covered by, by round stones and pebbles. There were some beach or some sandy areas. In fact, on the one side of the beach, I always called it my hearth side because it would, it would be in the sun most of the day. It was on the south southwest side of the pond and so that is the side that would get the sun most of the day and it was very warm even in the winter time so i called that i called that beach my hearth side but for the most part there is also from from what you had told me at one time there is a trail that goes all the way around the pond that did not that did not exist when i was living at walden pond you just had to cut through the woods well the the ridges would go all the way down to the pond itself yeah, there's a there's there's a beautiful trail that you just walk around the pond now. It it it, it was nice, I, but it, at the same time, it doesn't take away from the forest. It's not too much. I had always hoped 
and I had said this, I, I think, in, in my journal, I had always hoped at one time that a place like Walden Pond would be set aside for recreation and contemplation. Um, Walden Pond itself, I would hope, would one day be a place for, for such, a, such a thing where you could just go and either swim in the pond or, or, or walk in the woods or, or just contemplate the pond and nature around you. And so I am, I am quite happy about that prospect, the, the way you are describing it. it. It seems to be a place where people will go for such a thing. It absolutely is. And, and that was, it, it really felt like, you know, if you were going to say, where does God live? When, when you get there, you go, well, he's got to have a house around here somewhere. I mean, that's the way you feel when you show up. It just feels like a spiritual place. It feels like you're just completely unplugging from the world and you're just, everything is quiet and makes, there's peace and things make sense again. Well, as I said, I always am looking for God in all of his lurking places and I always seem to find him. So you, you when you built your house, it was on the north side of the pond, correct? Yes. And there's 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 a little cove where the house was built. Is that correct? Yes, there were there are several coves at Walden Bond, and and I had a cove about 12, 12 rods from my house. There was a cove that I would bathe in in the morning. That's where you would bathe. How often do you bathe? Well, on a on a day like this in Concord, it is about ninety degrees according to the uh, the thermometer outside of my father's house. And so, on a day like this, I would bathe first thing in the morning. When I was living at Walden, I would bathe first thing in the morning. That was probably the best thing that I did all day. <laughs> um, and then in the afternoons, if it was particularly warm, I would bathe again in the afternoon. That is the beauty of living near a pond as you can bathe as often as you want, especially after a long day of hoeing beans. The, the best thing you can do afterwards is go for a, go for a bathe in the pond. Now that I am, I, I am currently living over on main street with my mother and my father and my sister, even on a hot day like this, if I follow the railroad tracks, I can be at Walden Pond in no time. And on a hot day like this, I will sometimes walk over once, at least once a day and, and, and bathe in the pond. As you were saying that, I was thinking, why would you call bathing twice a day bathing? It seems like one of them would be swimming. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I figured it out. Well, I, I should tell you that bathing, I, I am quite astounded by this fact that I know very few people who routinely bathe themselves. Um, in fact, I know a, a farmer here in Concord who has proudly not had a bath in 15 years. And, uh, and, and he brags about that fact. Um, but I find some of the younger people are starting to take uh, bathing seriously as, as not only being very healthful, but also being, uh, being very recreational as well. How does that man's wife feel about him not bathing for 15 years? <laughs> I am not sure. You would have to ask her, I would think. In fact, now that you mention it, I am not even sure if he is married. <laughs> well, it seems like those two things would, would happen together. <laughs> well, bathing, bathing is not, has not quite caught on with us here in Concord or elsewhere as something that should be done every day. Really? It's not something done regularly? Well, you must remember that if you are going to bathe, first you have to uh, go to the well to get the water, and then you have to take that water into the kitchen and heat it up over the stove, and then you have to take that, heat, that hot water, 
and either go out to the, the, the bathing tub where you have it either in the barn or in some other room and you have to fill up that tub and then you have to bathe in that and then you have to empty that tub and get that water. So it is, it is quite a chore to be able to bathe. So a lot, of, a lot of people consider it just something that they can do once in a while or, or, or if they have to do it perhaps on a Saturday night or a, or a Sunday morning before they go to, go to meeting. But it is just something that most people that I know do not do on a, on a regular basis. Now, I, I still wash my face and hands every day. But when I was living at Walden Pond, of course, the, the pond is frozen in the wintertime. And so I would have to take my axe and go down and cut a hole in the ice and able to get some water to wash my face and my hands. I would usually, I would usually have my last bath about the middle of October. Oh, and then you would go a long stretch without having one because the pond was frozen. Exactly. Oh, and there were no beans to work. <laughs> no, the, the, <laughs> the beans that I had were in my cellar by then. I see. That's what I was going to say. The difference between that second bath being a swimming versus bathing is the fact that you work the beans, which meant you needed a bath. Exactly. Exactly. And, but I, uh, there is something the Hindus talk about renew thyself every day. And I consider my daily bath to be exactly that. When I am in the pond, I am renewing myself every day. Uh, and I do it in the morning. As the Hindus also say, the intelligence is awake with the dawn. So when I am uh, up with the dawn and bathing in the pond, I feel that my intelligences are awakening with the sunrise. Hmm. You know, I want to ask you about, I understand that you read some Hindu scripture. Although he wanted solitude badly while living at Walden Pond, people were interested in him and curious about his odd lifestyle. The result was a steady stream of inquisitive visitors. I suppose this is the definition of irony. In the next episode, he may say something towards the end that is super offensive. If you are offended, remember, this was a different time, and Thoreau was for the rights of all people. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast.